it's the Southside's own Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Welcome in to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I'm Chris Buck along with Adam Abdallah singing for Jonathan Hood tonight. You can follow us on Twitter at Adam A. Abdallah and at Chris Black. We are live from the First Midwest Bank Studios on State Street in downtown Chicago. We are here till 9 o'clock tonight. We are open for business and your phone calls at 312-332-3776. You can also tweet at us throughout the show. We'll get back to you. We'll have an update in 25 minutes from Pittsburgh from Jesse Rogers as the Cubs and Pirates play. We will have the summer of football coming up with Jason Fitz. You hear him on First and Last and on Golik and Wingo. 4 to 9 a.m. every morning right here on ESPN 1000. Jason Fitz will talk a little NFL and a little, little college football for the summer of football with us coming up in about 10 minutes. Yeah, both seasons are just around the corner. We'll be back with uh, Chicago's College Tailgate on Saturday, August 31st from noon to 2.30, I believe, that day. We'll be on at noon uh, for the first Saturday of college football, and uh, it'll be great. And then we'll be on on Labor Day as well. You get two You get two of us. You get two two times for you, me, Jonathan Hood. It's going to be great. Yeah, We're Chicago, talk college football. Yes, Chicago's college football returns this fall. Jonathan Hood, Chris Black, Adam Abdallah, each Saturday throughout the fall, we'll cover college football for you that right here. much more professional than On my, ESPN 1000. At 8.30, we will also, after Jesse's update, talk with Don Van Nata from ESPN. He has a new show called Backstory. It will premiere on ABC on Sunday. It goes behind the scenes. It's like investigative journalism meets a 30 for 30 in shorter form, basically. Yeah, it's not he, yeah. It's not as long as a 30 no, for 30, no, no, no. but it's, uh, the first episode will be about Serena Williams and last year at the 2018 U.S. Open final where she was... Uh, she got the penalties and everything that took place and what happened after and the fallout that took place from that. We'll talk with uh, Don Van Nata coming up at 8.30 about that new show. Yeah, he's a very well-respected journalist, and he's going to slum it with us for <laughs> yes, yes. about uh, 15, 10, 10, 15 minutes. Can't wait. I'm sure he's pumped. I'm sure he's uh, so Black excited. Black and here on ESPN he 1000. And he is, well, he was on Levitard earlier today, so okay, I, I think we... Fair. We yeah. can fit in somewhere, right? If, if he can deal with the Levitard stuff, then he can deal with us. All right, Black and Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 singing for Jonathan Hood. Uh, if you haven't heard it yet, here's Daryl Morey on a podcast called the uh, Self-Made with Nade Shot podcast. He made this statement about James Harden, and he suggests that James Harden is the greatest scorer ever over Michael Jordan. 
I don't think they realized James Harden was as good as he is now, right? That's correct. To be fair, I don't know if anyone did. We, we, we put all our assets in to trade for him. Um, but no one could anticipate he'd be the best player in the world. Like, why did you, why did you put all your assets? Why him? So both the eye test, cause he looks amazing. I think anyone watched him, but if you look, if you looked at data at the time, once he had the ball in his hands, and it's still true to this day, and I get a lot of because you know someone asked me who's a better scorer, him or Michael Jordan, and and it's just factual that James Harden is a better scorer than Michael Jordan. Based now. on the math. Based on literally, like you give you give James Harden the ball, and before you're giving up the ball, how many points do you generate? Which is how you should measure offense. Uh, James Harden is by far number one in NBA history, and he was number one even at the Oklahoma City Thunder. It just he was coming off the bench. It was a little more hidden. So you needed good data to sort of suss that out. So we knew he had that amazing skill to be a scorer. Yeah, people probably aren't going to like you saying that. No, no, people hate it. Now, the counter argument is reasonable. They say if you put Michael Jordan on a team now, he would do more than James Harden. That's possible. But if you're just saying, like, NBA history, how much – if you give this guy the ball, how much does his team score after you give him the ball before the other team gets the ball? It's James Harden. And I know that – that makes people mad, it's just, but it's just, it's literally a fact. So that's Daryl Morey. I'm Chris Black with Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000. Uh, you know what? The, the quote that I think Daryl Morey will point to when you want to come back at him with this Jordan conversation mm-hmm. is that he said, if you listened closely, he said how many points he generates. Yeah. So, so the key there is I think Morey, if you remove the three point conversation from this uh, debate, what Maury would then point to is that because James Harden's assist numbers are so high that James Harden is assisting and scoring in a much more effective fashion mm-hmm. than Michael Jordan did because Michael Jordan's assist numbers never grew to the levels that James Harden's have been for the last couple of years as a lead guard in the league. Now, you could also come back with the, 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 the argument that, yeah, if Jordan knew the information we knew now about the three-point line, Probably Jordan in an offense today would have the ball in his hands each and every possession, mm-hmm. right? And thus mm-hmm. he would be getting assists because having the ball each and every possession, double team comes, he's going to find a guy in the corner for an open three, thus his assist. That's how James Harden racks up all the assists. I think he gets. When, when the history books are written about uh, the Jordan eras and the the Phil Jackson, someone should have gone to Phil Jackson, like if I and, and told him. To tell Michael that three is more than two. Well, hey, listen, it, the entire game was played differently. We I didn't. Know, I'm just messing. We didn't morph know, our minds messing. into this new way of basketball until no, no. Steph, Clay, and Splash here's, Bros. Here, here's what I will dominating say. the league five years ago. Here's what I will say. End of uh, not even end of the game. Who would you rather have the ball? Whose hands would you rather have the ball in? Michael Jordan. Okay, that's it. Okay, okay what about the first possession of the game? I, I, I said Michael Jordan. I said who? What, I said, what about? I didn't second say a time quarter of the game. Second quarter, second media timeout. Coming out of break, out of timeout. What do you get? Oh, horse Michael Grant. Jordan. Horse Grant. No, no, no. No, horse, I mean, no, like, no, no, like, no. second media timeout in the second quarter. Horse Grant, statistically, yeah, okay. uh, above everybody so in the league. It, what I think is also funny about this is Daryl Morey, Houston Rockets GM. There says. Factually speaking, if you just go by the numbers, well, uh, listen. Factually speaking, the greatest scorer in NBA history was Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah, like no one could stop him if he was in today's game. No one would be able to stop him. So if you want to go factually speaking and and, and press up your glasses on your nose like the nerd that you are, 
GM of the Houston Rockets. I actually like Daryl Morey, but for for no, effect, no, so do I. For this conversation, it would be Wilt Chamberlain, he's and then wrong. you would look at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the scoring champ in in NBA history. You would look at him, and then you would go to Michael Jordan. He's wrong about you. You this. would not say it's James Harden. You wouldn't. You just wouldn't. I get it. He's your guy. You trade for him. Hey, you stepped out. Yeah. When everyone else didn't see it, and yeah. you hit big, uh-huh. you found a superstar, Good you job. manufactured a superstar, because you were a team in the middle. Congratulations. The Houston Rockets were the team that was in the middle, never finding a superstar, not through free agency. Mm-hmm. They couldn't draft one. Mm-hmm. They had to figure it out some other way. And what did they do? They went and traded for a guy who was overshadowed mm-hmm. by Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, and he blossomed into one of the three or four best players in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. He's not Michael Jordan. No, he's not. And, yeah, you're right. Any time of game, no matter the time of game, any time of game, I want the ball in Michael Jordan's Third hands. Third quarter, second timeout, after a turnover on your uh, on your defensive end, but you call the timeout and you're drawing something up. What do you do? You give oh, it to no, Jordan. No, you give it to Cartwright. Okay, Cartwright. Everybody knows that. Uh, did you see this earlier this week uh, on ESPN television, the jump? Rachel Nichols got a chance to sit down with Draymond Green. And remember, the theme all offseason for the Golden State Warriors, Abdallah, is that People don't think they're going to be any good this season. People think that they're going to take a major step back now that Durant's gone and that Klay Thompson's hurt and that this team will be fighting for their playoff lives. Here's Draymond Green with Rachel Nichols on the jump. Golden State Warriors are going to look very different from here on out, though. The biggest departure is, of course, Kevin Durant. Have you talked to Kevin this summer? Absolutely. I actually talked to Kay yesterday. That's my brother. You know, if someone would have told me, man, Kevin Durant's going to come to the Warriors. And you guys are going to win two championships and then have a shot at winning the third. Would you take that? In a heartbeat. And so uh, that was a major success. And I'm happy for him. How did he tell you that he was picking Brooklyn? I found out that he was picking Brooklyn when everybody else found out, which is exactly how it should be. Oh, it's to me to tell me before he tell everybody else. Like, we did what we had to do. The thing that people forget about in this league is like, this is our lives. Everybody thinks it's kind of the end of us. That's just not smart. <laughs> We're not done yet. We remember what you said at the end of the NBA Finals. Do you still feel that way? I've heard people say we're not going to make the playoffs. That's crazy to me. I mean, that's just like, that's total disrespect, but no different than the disrespect we've all been getting for years. So we're sitting here in Las Vegas. The odds makers have not given you guys good odds to win the title compared to some of the other teams. And it reminds me a little bit of the beginning of this conversation. You were not given very good odds to be sitting here doing this interview talking about your $100 million contract. What do you make of odds as you go forward here? I, I like it. Um, you know, being an underdog, it's been a while since we've been an underdog. Um, but it brings that underdog chip back. And I, I miss that chip. I'm pretty sure Steph missed that chip. And, some of the stuff Clay been texting me this summer, I'm positive he misses the chip. So I like where we're at. I'm excited about it and looking forward to it. So to the odds maker, thanks. You got me where I am today. I look forward to where they take me again. So that was Draymond Green with Rachel Nichols on the jump. Abdallah, with the Golden State Warriors being the best team in basketball for the last five years, they have not had that chip where they had something to prove outside of trying to be one of the greatest teams in NBA history. You know, right now in Vegas, there are five teams 
with better odds to win the title this upcoming season. The Warriors are at plus 1,200. The rest of the NBA, the top odds to win the title, the Clippers at plus 450, the Bucks at plus 550, the Lakers at plus 600, the 76ers at plus 800, the Rockets at plus 900. I'll take the, I'll take the Warriors for sure. I'm not counting them out. Like You can't tell me that once they get to the playoffs, Clay comes back, that this team and Steph's going to be on a mission this year to try to be the MVP and be the best scorer in the league. Come on. What about Draymond? Come on. You That's heard his voice. D'Angelo Russell? The, the moment that Draymond lost last year, he called his shot. We're, this is not over. Of course it's not. And he's going to try and back that up. Yeah. I get that everyone tries to They're back it up best and everyone tries in the to NBA? win. Come on. Chris Buck and Adam Abdallah singing for Jonathan Hood tonight, each night throughout the summer. Jonathan brings you great football content. It could be NFL. It could be college. It could be fantasy. And each night during the 8 o'clock hour, he gives you a segment called The Summer of Football. The Summer of Football. We're just having fun and we're working, baby. With Jonathan Hood. Come on, baby. Let's get it. Let's go now. You fired the first shot. Let's go, man. Five starts. We're deep in their own territory. And it's picked off at the 25-yard line. Eddie Jackson. And he'll go in for the touchdown. We're just having fun and we're working, baby. Pressure now on Mahomes. He's in trouble. Now gets it away. Are you kidding me? Barkley up the middle, cuts to the outside. Saquon Barkley across midfield. Standard bounds. And Barkley takes it all the way. Summer of football. Lawrence flips it open. Justin Ross off and running. And Clemson strengthens its grip on this championship game. Williams in the game for the first time this year for Notre Dame. Takes the hand up and takes off. The summer of football. You got it. Work right here on ESPN 1000. I think we ain't there yet. And the ESPN app. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. We now talk football with Jason Fitz, the host of First and Last and Golik and Wingo. 4 to 9 a.m. you can hear right here on ESPN 1000 every weekday. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jason Fitz. Jason, I'm going to start you off with this. Uh, you guys this morning on Golik and Wingo talked a lot about the Chicago Bears and their kicking situation. Are you surprised the Bears have gotten this far into training camp and still don't have a kicker for the regular season solved? I'm more than surprised. I'm stunned. I mean, when you're talking about a Super Bowl-level team, when you're talking about a team that has no discernible weakness, and when you're talking about a team that has the talent they have on both sides of the ball, you can't let this linger. I mean, this is the one thing that I can't make sense of. And we said it this morning on Golik and Wingo, there's nothing you can take away from the preseason for most teams. For the Bears, there's one thing. I mean, I just I, we need to find out who is going to be kicking, how the kicking is going to look, and they need to sort of get the collective monkey off of the back for their psyche. I mean, there's, there's a spot here where when you have the talent that they have at the window that they have, you just can't take a risk in this particular spot at that particular position, and I can't believe we're saying that about a dang kicker. That just sort of doesn't follow the line of what we usually expect in the NFL. This is a must-fix moment for the Bears, and it's got to be fixed right away. I promise you this is not a loaded question. What are your thoughts on Mitchell Trubisky? (laughs) Uh, Look, Mitchell Trubisky, I think, you know, everybody's torn on Mitchell Trubisky. And what I would say is this. There had to come a spot where we had to reimagine everything we thought about Jared Goff, right? There was a spot where we'd all given up on Goff, and let's remember that Eric Dickerson was a year in saying, this guy shouldn't be with the team, and now, you know, a year later, he comes in and says, oh, he's great. I think with Mitchell Trubisky, there were so many misconceptions, or preconceptions, I should say, 
about who he was as a quarterback before he ever got into the league because he was considered a reach as a draft pick. We need to sort of take all of that away and just look at the production. Matt Nagy has found a way to make a productive quarterback that can make plays downfield and most under, most importantly understands that he needs to limit mistakes. I mean, this is exactly what you want out of a quarterback. I don't think the Bears are in need of an epic numbers guy that's just going to be able to do anything at the position. I think Mitchell, Mitchell Trubisky is going to be just fine. And not only that, just fine is good enough to win this team a Super Bowl from that position. Jason Fitz from First and Last and Golden Wingo. You can hear him every weekday morning right here on ESPN 1000. Joining Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jason, if we look at the Packers, Aaron Rodgers with a new head coach, how do you think that's going to work out for the quarterback, Aaron Rodgers? Look, I'm, I'm the one guy that's going to say this, but I'm going to say it over and over and over again. I don't like anything about this relationship. And at the end of the day, well, we can talk about Aaron Rodgers. This is less about Aaron Rodgers and more about Matt LaFleur. And Matt LaFleur was a quarterback's coach with the Rams. He becomes the play caller, and he comes in as the offensive coordinator for the Titans. Did I miss the epic launch of the Titans' office? Did I, did I miss the spot where Marcus Mariota suddenly transcended? Did I miss the clever play calling that made the Titans better than they were? I'm still surprised Matt LaFleur got that gig, and now he's in the situation with the gig where he's got to deal with somebody that just – I mean, every time there's even a, a negative look on the sideline between the two of them, we're going to blow this thing up. It's a pressure cooker situation for a coach that, you know, for all the talk we have about Cliff Kingsbury and the lack of proof of concept there is there, we don't have a lot of proof of concept for Matt LaFleur, the offensive mind, Matt LaFleur, the the play caller, or Matt LaFleur, the head coach. So, you know, if I'm Packers, if I'm the Packers and I'm a Packers fan, I'm nervous about the fact that to me right now, the Packers are the third best team in the division. Aaron Rodgers dealt with Mike McCarthy for so long and was able to be successful with Mike McCarthy. Do you think it's an upgrade from Mike McCarthy and that the talent will just weigh, you know, rise to the top? It's a, it's a change from Mike McCarthy, and, and, you know, we forget that Mike McCarthy was a pretty darn good coach, but the thing is, Mike McCarthy became stagnant as a play caller, right? So that's everybody's issue, is that if you know what's coming or not, it will be change, and maybe change for the sake of change in this situation does act, act, actually benefit, uh, you know, when, when you look at Aaron Rodgers. Uh, Aaron Rodgers' production is going to be just fine, but if you're Matt LaFleur and you're coming in and you're trying to actually lead an entire football team, how can you do that when you know that you could be cut off at the knees at any point and you don't have the resume that Mike McCarthy had to even try and demand respect in the locker room? I mean, the, the guys I've talked to in Bristol that played constantly talk about how there is a moment where respect is earned and not given to head coaches. And that's the part that I think is going to become haunting for Matt LaFleur, especially if he doesn't get on the same page early with Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers is not the head coach there, so he can't be the head coach. And this isn't the NBA. You can't LeBron your way to a Super Bowl title. That's a good point. Jason Fitz joining Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So if you don't think the Packers are the team that are going to challenge the Chicago Bears, I would assume it's the Minnesota Vikings. Do you trust Kirk Cousins to figure this out and become a better-than-average quarterback for the Vikings? Yeah, I do, actually. And, and, you know, again, like when I was talking about Trubisky early, sometimes you just have to take the how they got theirs out of the equation when you have the conversation about who they are. So we're having so much of the conversation about Kirk Cousins because he signs an $84 million fully guaranteed contract. So that changes the way we view everything he does at this point. When you look at the offensive production that the Vikings got last year, it was pretty incredible. It didn't result in enough wins, but I believe that the Vikings are a a football team that are going to take a small step forward. And a small step forward is actually enough to put them in contention at the top of the division. 
as someone who watches a lot of college football, I want to get your thoughts on Kyler Murray because I'm watching the game yesterday and they call a false start on number one. And I'm like, on who? When was it? The last time I saw a false start, I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ever seen a false start on a quarterback. And then it happened again. And I couldn't believe it. What are your thoughts on Kyler Murray in the Cardinals offense so far? Well, you know, the, a couple of things there. One is that clap is something that college quarterbacks do, and it's legal at the college level. But you can't clap before the snap in that, that manner, or you'll get called for it. I, I don't think that's going to be a regular season problem. I have a sneaking suspicion that the refs had an eye on it just to try and help Kyler Murray through that. We haven't seen any real indication of what the Cliff Kingsbury offense is going to look like because, frankly, it's going to be a motion-oriented offense, and there was no motion. And, and look, I'm a lifelong diehard Raiders fan. I'd love to tell you that the Raiders are just that incredible and that the Cardinals are just that bad. But the fact is, when you look at all of it, there was no motion. There was no movement. There was no trickery. This was just, can Kyler Murray do his job? Now, that being said, we do have to remember that Kyler Murray played behind an epic offensive line at Oklahoma that was flat out better than his competition, and he played against some trash Big 12 defenses. So I think there is some progression issue, and I think the most concerning thing from last night was the series where he gave up the safety because the Raiders sent a blitz on three straight plays. He misidentified the blitz on two of the three, and on the other play, he, he flat out missed the throw. That's not what you want out of your quarterback in a vanilla versus vanilla preseason situation. So Kyler Murray's got some growing to do quickly. We'll, we'll stick with NFL for a minute, too. But, uh, Jason, one conversation, because Adam and I ho- host the college football show on our station each week throughout the fall here on ESPN 1000. A conversation we had last year about Kyler Murray was that we didn't actually think he was the best player in college football. Did you think he was the best player in college football last season? No, not at all. Uh, look, at the, I mean, uh, uh, Trevor Lawrence and Tua Tagovailoa were the two best players in college football last year. Uh, and I'm still a little baffled. We, uh, Kyler Murray is a human highlight machine. That's spectacular. And we like to talk about the level of play and the, uh, the level of competition consistently throughout this. But I just think we fell in love with Kyler Murray somewhere along the way. And so that took everything over. Let's remember, if, Clint, if Cliff Kingsbury hadn't had the first pick in the draft, there are still draft opponents that think that Kyler Murray would have dropped. This was not an Andrew Luck or a Peyton Manning situation where clearly the best player came out. This is far different than that. Yeah, because if Tua Tungavailoa would have actually played in full games, his stats would have looked way better than Kyler Murray's, and then we would have all been drooling over what Tua did last season. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah talking with Jason Fitz right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. If we look at the Cowboys, do you think that Ezekiel Elliott will actually miss games this season, or do you think the Cowboys will get this done before the season starts i think he's going to miss some games and you know so this is my the the thought process for me is that zeke has so much so little leverage in this situation and he needs to get the deal done the unfortunate thing is that by the time he gets the deal done it's going to leak into the regular season that's a worst case scenario for the cowboys because i do think they're going to get Dak done before the season starts if they get Dak done and then they start the season and Dak struggles oh the whispers will become roars of did they pay the wrong guy? Should they have paid Dak? I mean, all of these things will come if Dak doesn't have Zeke with him from day one. So that's a worst-case scenario for the Cowboys, but I think it's a real one for him. And, and Zeke is going to wait until Zeke gets paid. We've seen it, and, and I, I have no reason to think that Zeke doesn't understand that he has to do this if he wants to get the deal. Because remember, guys, it's not just about this deal. If Zeke can get himself paid right now, he gives himself the rare opportunity at the running back position for a mega deal now and a mega deal again in four years. Very few running backs can get two massive contracts in the NFL. Zeke's in that position, but he's got to get this deal done 
right now to do that. What do you think Dak is worth? Because we're keeping an eye on that contract here in Chicago because when Mitchell Trubisky, <laughs> yeah. after this season, Ugh. you know, it's after the third year, but like it's really his second year because that first year didn't count. So we're kind of in wait and see mode. But ultimately, his new contract is going to be compared to Dak Prescott. So what do you think Dak Prescott's value is? Uh, you know, if you, if I were just – if I could make imaginary numbers in a negotiation – I would put him in the mid-20s. What do I think he's going to get? Mid-30s? You know, and, and that's crazy. I, I mean, I'm telling every fan base right now, pay attention to this because you, you've got to look at the quarterback position and understand that when they get paid, they get paid at incredible levels. And the Cowboys are going to have to ask themselves this real question. What's worse, to overpay Dak by $5 million a year, for example, more than you're comfortable with, or to let Dak walk and just presume you can find another Dak in the draft? I, I mean... Y'all know it. Chicago knows it. When you don't have a quarterback, it is a hopeless, helpless feeling for a franchise. Quarterbacks know that, too. So, you know, unfortunately, again, for me as a Raiders fan, you know, when Derek Carr got his deal, people flipped out. Well, a couple of things to note about that. One, that franchise hadn't had a quarterback in forever, so of course they were going to pay Derek Carr. Two, that deal, while it looked inappropriately large the first two years, now has Derek Carr making about $22 million a year at the quarterback position which is about on par for what Derek Carr should be making. So it normalizes. That's the only hope that we can find in it. Jason Fitz from First and Last and Golden Wingo talking with Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jason, when you look across the National Football League, is there a team that you're looking at and you think, you know what, that team's going to be really good this year and nobody is talking about them? Oh, that is a great question. That is a, I mean, that's a spectacular question. I don't know about really good. I do think the 49ers are going to take a pretty, a pretty big leap forward. I don't know that I would call them really good, but when we think about the fact that they were at the top of the draft last year, I think they're going to put themselves into a wild card conversation just by getting Jimmy G healthy. If they paid him that kind of money, they got to believe that he's their guy. Plus, they make some significant upgrades on the defensive side of the ball. So I think San Francisco's poised to take a pretty big leap forward uh, you know, in, in my mind. Other than that, man, I, it just sort of feels like the AFC is the same old, same old. I mean, it's still going to be the Patriots and the Colts and the Chiefs to me, and I think we're used to that. Uh, at, at this point, there's no big shock there. In the NFC, I don't see a real big surprise candidate coming out either. Moving to uh, to college football, is this the year, obviously everybody thinks it's going to be Alabama and Clemson, but is this the year that Jim Harbaugh finally takes Michigan to a college football playoff? I don't think so. You know, and I want I want to think so because it'd be great for college football. You know, but but ultimately, Clemson's got a cakewalk schedule. Clemson's just going to be able to moonwalk in. They're barely even going to have to sleep, and they'll get into the playoff. That one's pretty easy. Alabama's got a little bit tougher road. So if, if we know those two play, those two spots are set, Michigan is going to have to do what they haven't done before, which is beat all of the teams in their conference that they just can't seem to get beat. You know, and even when they do that, it's still going to have to be prevalent. Oklahoma is going to be a very good football team, and Jalen Hurts is going to step in and be yet another big quarterback. And there are a lot. There's a lot of attention on the quarterback play in the Pac-12. Like, there's going to be better teams this year than we expect. So you'd be asking Michigan to not only run away with the Big Ten, but also to be standout better than everybody else. That's asking a lot out of Jim Harbaugh, considering he just hasn't done it. And when he doesn't do it this year. There's going to be a very fair question about what reasonable expectations should be for Harbaugh moving forward. Jason Fitz joining Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Notre Dame last year, they lost to Clemson. Clemson rolled over them. Uh, but they returned their quarterback, Ian Book. What do you think of the Fighting Irish heading into this season? 
You know, I, I get the opportunity to work with Mike Golick Jr. a lot, and he's been really honest and open about the fact that not only is this Notre Dame team probably a little less talented top to bottom than last year's, but more so the fact that they got rolled again in the playoffs is significant because this isn't a team that gets the benefit of the doubt from a conference championship. They don't get the benefit of the doubt anymore because now twice they've been rolled in the playoff when they actually have to play the best of the best from the rest. So uh, I, I think the committee and themselves are going to have a hard time separating this year's Notre Dame from what they've seen in the past, and that's going to keep them out of the playoff. We keep mentioning Clemson and Alabama. Is Georgia not getting enough respect from people? You are so right about that. And look, Georgia's got to win one game. I mean, ultimately, I know we know Georgia's got to get their way through the East. Florida's going to be better. I understand all of that. DeAndre Swift is going to be a spectacular player. I mean, a spectacular player this year. And he's going to come in and crush it at the running back position for Georgia. Georgia is capable of beating Bama. They just got to find a way to get it done. And if they get it done, that, again, these are the things that Harbaugh is scared of because, my God, if Georgia turns around and beats Bama in the SEC championship game, do we really think that we won't just have two SEC teams in the playoff? I mean, that's, I don't think that's unrealistic, and Georgia can absolutely do it. It's just hard to bet against Bama because, let's face it, if any of us today had to bet our house, Bama or Georgia, we're all going Bama, right? Like That's just the way yeah. the, the odds always play. Yeah, is uh, this finally the year that Texas is back? Is this finally the year that Texas <laughs> is back in the conversation for a championship? I, I, I guess. You know, it, it's funny. Like, I should be more passionate about Texas because, my God, Ellinger can play, right? We know they've got, they've got the ability. Tom Herman has turned them around far quicker than any of us thought that he would be able to. But, man, there's just sort of this – this moment for me where I, I don't know, I, I just haven't bought in 100%, and, and I think Oklahoma is still a better football team. So, you know, it, it's going to be a, a dogfight between them, but I still think Oklahoma is a better football team. But to, besides the top teams that we've mentioned, what's the one team that you're most looking forward to watch this season? I think Oregon has a ton to prove. Like Justin Herbert would have been the top overall quarterback to a lot of people, and some people think he still has a shot of being the second overall quarterback because we all know that's going to be Tua in the next draft. Uh, Oregon's got a lot to prove. Uh, and I think Oregon also has a lot of talent. They can put up a bunch of points. And there is sort of this sentiment that the Pac-12 got better. And, and as the Pac-12 continues to get better, it's only going to give more love to the team that stands out. I think Oregon has a real shot to at least keep the conversation going longer that we should be paying attention to West Coast football. Thank you, Jason. We appreciate it. Fantastic, guys. Appreciate you. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah singing for Jonathan Hood tonight on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. You can follow us on Twitter at Adam Abdallah and at Chris Black. We're live from the First Midwest Bank Studios on State Street in downtown Chicago. We now talk with Don Van Natta from ESPN. He has a new show that comes out on Sunday on ABC. It's called Backstory. Uh, noon Central Time on Sunday on ABC. You can also get the show Backstory on the ESPN app after the show airs on ABC. You can follow Don on Twitter at DVN Junior. Uh, Don Van Nata, uh, he's the one that does the show, and the first show that appears is Serena versus the Umpire. And, and Don, what we'll start you off with this is if we go back to last year, the 2018 U.S. Open Final, and Serena, and why you're covering her in this story, backstory, what was so interesting about the fallout from this story that made you want to make this the first episode? 
Well, if you remember last year, it was a remarkable scene. It was supposed to be Serena's coronation, winning her 24th Grand Slam singles title, tying Margaret Court's all-time record. And what happened between her and the chair umpire, Carlos Ramos, there was so much emotion that Serena showed there. She made it a gender fight. And at the very end, Naomi Osaka, who won her first Grand Slam title, was weeping during the trophy celebration. You never see that. You never see a champion's tears where she's crying, not tears of joy, but tears of sadness. And so we just wanted to go back, look at the sort of backstory of Serena and everything she brought to that court that day. And it turns out she had a long history of clashes with chair umpires at the U.S. Open, three separate years, because she kept making references to that during the match. And we also looked at the backstory of the chair umpire, Carlos Ramos, who was nearly anonymous. But turns out that he has uh, umpired dozens of Serena's matches in the past, including Serena's match uh, against her sister Venus at last year's U.S. Open. And they have, a, they, they have a history as well that we delved into. And then just everything that happened during the match. We just slowed the match down, almost as a Pruder film, like showing you those three code violations. What was really going on with the coaching signal that was initially sent? Serena says she never cheats. We show a split screen that's very revealing as Patrick Maratoglou moves his hands forward for her to move up. Serena's looking right at her her box, looking right at him, and then he nods. So I went to Wimbledon this year and asked Maratoglou, very simple question, why'd you nod? And he gave a very revealing answer. So we're really excited about There's a lot of new information in the episode. Not giving anything away, obviously. Like you said, you went to Wimbledon to interview the coach, and you got a very revealing answer from him. But do you think this kind of, I don't know if vilify is the right word, but does this kind of paint Serena in a bad light or in a light that might change people's opinion about her? I don't think it it paints her in a bad light. I think there's a lot more context and information that was going on here. Remember, everybody came up with a conclusion almost instantly watching that match, often shaped just by a few seconds of either watching it or somebody's tweet or a very short video clip that they saw on social media and you were either with Serena or against her. This doesn't vilify Serena anything close to that. What it does is it just shows context. It slows it down. We have camera angles uh, that nobody's ever seen. It was not on the broadcast. Twice during the match, the ESPN broadcast went during changeovers, went to commercial breaks. And yet there were conversations going on between Serena and Ramos that the live audience did not see. We show those in full, which give you a much better understanding of what was going on in their clash. And then we have a whole bunch of new information and interesting information in the aftermath of the match and the minutes and hours after it, as well as all the months since then, you know, leading up to the, you know, this next U.S. Open coming up in a couple of weeks. Don Vanetta, ESPN, joining Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. His new show, Backstory, will debut on Sunday right here in Chicago on ABC at noon. Don, uh, you know, when I watch the trailer, not only is the sports angle interesting to me, but I'm a, a journalism nerd. I like seeing how things come together, and it seems like the way this is shot will feature a lot of how you put together this story. Is that true? That's exactly right. It is a uh, journalism journey that I go on, and uh, I am speaking to the audience, I hope, in a voice that's very casual and authentic about 
what it takes to put a story like this together. It's really like a cold case for sports journalism, all the topics we're doing in the first season. Uh, this is just a one-year-old story, but the second episode goes 100 years back to the Black Sox scandal. Uh, the 100th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal, of, of course, is this year of the throwing of the World Series. And then we move forward 70 years to the banning of Pete Rose for betting on baseball. And then we fast forward to now with baseball's embrace of legalized gambling. So those three aspects are in the next episode called the banning of shoeless joe and yeah i'm on a journey and i'm trying to bring the audience along showing how it works sometimes you run into roadblocks as an investigative reporter and we won't be shy about showing that and uh and so we we're really excited about the approach the, the show has a very different feel to it it looks different it's beautifully shot really beautifully edited and sounds different and so we're really excited to uh to share it with everybody this weekend how did you go about picking these stories in the order that you're going to present them in a great question. So when we decided to do this, and we got a, a green light late last year from ESPN to do this, uh, John Dahl, who's the co-creator of the acclaimed 30 for 30 documentary series, he's one of the executive producers and a co-creator, along with Wright Thompson, the great senior writer for ESPN, the magazine, and myself, we sat down and we just brainstormed. And we just sort of thought about any topics where we felt we don't know the full story. Maybe there's some room to run with some of the reporting. And we had a long list. And then we narrowed it down to these five. The way we decided in the order is, of course, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the U.S. Open last year. So we just we had a time peg for this to be our first. And of course, we also have a time peg for the Shoeless Joe one. There's not necessarily a time peg for the other three. There is on one that we haven't yet announced. If you think about it, you might even come up with it. We're trying to be a little coy about two of the episodes. But the third episode that we're going to release early in 2020 is the catfishing of Manti Teow. Remember that story from 2012, the Notre Dame linebacker with the fake dead girlfriend? um, We're so excited about that one. We've done a lot of reporting already. We have a lot of... uh, really new information, new insight about that. We can't wait to share that one. And then there's two other episodes we haven't yet revealed that'll be coming out in 2020. Don, as two of the younger guys at our station, we remember that Manti Teo story specifically because we were the ones trying to explain it to everyone else we were working with at the time because (laughs) no one quite understood what catfishing was or or how it was even possible and all this stuff. And we were like, yeah, it kind of is in this day and age. It's kind of, you know, you could maybe have a girlfriend who you've really never met and, and that's an actual thing. Is there anything from that story specifically that stands out to you? Well, first of all, you make a great point. There was sort of a generational divide. I'm a lot older than you guys. I'm in my mid-50s, and uh, and we actually have a very interesting anecdote, even at ESPN. I think they asked for a raise of hands in a meeting of a bunch of executives and editors of who knew what catfishing was. And this was a pretty much skewed a little bit of an older crowd, and I think two or three hands out of 30 went up when this story was broken by Deadspin. So, yeah, we're going to, on that story, what we're going to do is we're going to look back at how the media just fell in love with a story that was too good to check. It was irresistible, right? I mean, you had all these fans at Notre Dame wearing lays and mourning this dead girlfriend that Manti Teo spoke so compellingly about somebody he had never met. And then when Dead Sprint, so we're going to talk about how the media fell in love with it as much as fans did. And Sports Illustrated and ESPN did stories about that, and we'll, we'll peel back the layers of that and how all that happened. And then, of course, Dead Spin breaks the story and how it was managed by Teo's crisis communications people. The initial interview he did was with Jeremy Schapp, as you might recall. It wasn't on camera, uh, which is really interesting. And I've already sat down and interviewed Jeremy about that, and as well as Teo's crisis communications 
intelligence person and, and the whole aftermath of that. And then I'm also just digging to see how much detail really know about it. That's one of the things I really want to find out. And I, and, and I, <laughs> I think you guys are going to enjoy that episode a lot. There's a lot of interesting insight in that episode. Being in Chicago and hosting a radio show here, we all have like the dream interview and it's for everybody will pretty much say Michael Jordan because nobody can really get a hold of him or get him for an interview. And ESPN's doing the, the whole 10 part thing on Jordan and the Bulls and everything. Is yes. there one story that you haven't been able to tell yet that is your dream story to tell? And maybe do you hit on it in this series? Uh, that's a really great question. Um, I don't want to give too much away. There is one, one of the two episodes we haven't announced yet. There is somebody who is on my short list of a dream interview. We haven't landed it yet, but I'm cautiously optimistic we will. Um, to be honest with you, another one is Roger Goodell. I've, I did a story, a profile, an investigative profile of Roger Goodell for ESPN's magazine in 2013. Five times I asked to sit down with the NFL commissioner. All five times he said no, and yet I still wrote a six or 7,000-word investigative profile that I think you know, holds up to this day that really got a lot of insight about Goodell and his leadership style. So he would also be on my list. I I have never spoken to Goodell other than to say hello in a hallway or something, but never have sat down with him and done a real in-depth interview. So he would be on my, on my bucket list too. And obviously Jordan would be, he's on everybody's. I mean, you know, and, and my colleague and friend, Wright Thompson did that great story when Jordan turned 50. Uh, If your listeners haven't read it, look it up. It's one of the great sports stories sports profiles ever done by anybody um right thompson on michael jordan don vanetta from espn joining chris buck and am abdallah here on espn 1000 and the espn app i'm not going to ask you about an interview you already did because i read the one from the washington post but something that i thought was interesting was they asked you about possible upcoming episodes i don't want to know whether or not there's something in the works but you said that you're curious about juiced baseballs and that's something that adam and i have talked about all summer where this idea where if the baseballs were manufactured to be different to increase scoring in baseball how we actually think that's a negative because more runs doesn't necessarily make a better baseball game. What makes you so curious about the juiced baseball? Well, I mean, you just look at the numbers, and the numbers themselves are off the chart. Uh, There's so many more home runs. The home run records that are falling, they're falling at an even faster pace than during the steroids era. So that alone has caught my attention. But there's so much that's suspicious about it. So Rawlings is bought by Major League Baseball a year ago. It's sort of secretive. As I understand it, the baseballs were manufactured uh, in either the Dominican Republic or Haiti. I know, I believe Haiti, and now it's Costa Rica. Uh, I've had people tell me that when they've taken the baseballs apart, they actually look different and feel different than the baseballs of just several years ago. So I, I'm curious about just trying to do that. Um, there's so much there. And, and, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. I've, as, as you guys know, you guys have talked about it all summer. That's all I'm talking about with all my friends who are baseball fans. You know, and it's almost like an assumption now has been made that the balls have been juiced, even though it hasn't been proven. So I'm fascinated by that subject. And for if we get a season two, we're cautiously optimistic we will. I would love to delve into that subject deeply. Do you think that hurts baseball? More scoring, more home runs? Does it, does it cheapen the game? Because that's kind of the angle we've taken this summer is that I, I feel like someone in our boardroom, boardroom with uh, Major League Baseball is sitting there saying, you know what, people really like home runs. If we increase home runs, 
Ratings will go up. More people will be interested. But yet, that just creates a longer, more drawn-out game because then you have to have more pitching changes. And, and just more runs doesn't actually equal a better baseball game. Is it something that bothers you? It does, totally. And I've been bothered by it all summer and, and last summer, too. But especially this summer where we've seen it you know, even more dramatically occur. Yeah, I'm an old school baseball purist. I like strategy. I like steals. I like, you know, building a run with a bunt. I mean, now it's just, it's home runs. It's, it's a ton of home runs and a ton of strikeouts. And as you say, so many pitching changes. And, you know, the pace of play, interestingly, this gets back a little bit to the Shoeless Joe episode. That was a concern of baseball. If you remember for a while, you know, Commissioner Rob Manfred talked about it a lot. Like, we've got to pick up the pace of the game for millennials. He doesn't say that anymore. Like, since Major League Baseball has embraced legalized gambling and made a sort of big bet on that as part of its future and all sorts of new revenue streams, now he says, well, the slow pace of play actually for in-play wagering gives gamblers in, in states where they can do it legally more of an opportunity to bet on every pitch or whether there's going to be a double play and everything. He cho- totally changed his tune, I think partly because of that, but also partly because it's connected directly to this, you know, explosion that we've seen in home runs. So. I'm with you guys. I, I, I don't find baseball as entertaining to watch, as interesting to sort of unpack with all the strategy when there's just guys booming home runs left and right. Don Van Natta, ESPN host of Backstory. You can see the first episode on ABC Sunday at noon here in Chicago, and then afterwards you can catch it on the ESPN app. Don, thank you so much for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed it. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah singing for Jonathan Hood tonight. Thank you to Sean Davis for producing this show. Thanks to Jason Fitz for coming on earlier tonight. And Don Van Nata from ESPN. His new show, Backstory, on ABC on Sunday at noon. Check it out. It's going to be really good. It's investigative reporting. It's kind of like 30 for 30s, but shorter, consumable. It'll be really good. We'll be on ABC on noon. Uh, this week is the debut episode, Serena versus the Umpire. It's about the 2018 U.S. Open final from last year. Chris Bleck in for Jonathan Hood. Uh, Sean, we have hit the moment in time on the Friday night program this summer where we announced that what time did Abdallah leave tonight? As we uh, sit here and wrap up tonight's show, what time did Abdallah duck out on us? Tonight's winner, if you had the time of 8.15, Abdallah wasn't here for the last, what, 45 minutes? This is like the name of the show all the time. Where's where's Abdallah Part 3? Now, see, here's the thing. I wouldn't be a bad guy and out him. Because of the the magic of radio, we we had two pre-recorded interviews from this afternoon. But this is like the fourth time this summer. So it's a running bit now. So he can't get mad. If no, this is if this is his thing. If you remember, the last time he said he would put five dollars in a jar every time he <laughs> left early. You know, we're we're building that up. We should put it on something good. Yeah. I think we should bet on the Warriors to win the championship with all the money that Abdallah gives us for ducking out early this summer. All right, Chris Black, uh, I will be back on Sunday with Abdallah on Sunday morning, 8 to 10. Oh, no, are the Cubs really going to lose this? Uh, Talk to you later. Hood's up in an hour. Talk to you then. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app.